Welcome to this Forthright Radio for September 1st, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. Returning to Forthright Radio is Izzy Award-winning Todd Miller. He was our guest in 2017 when the book that won that Izzy Award, Storming the Wall, Climate Change, Migration, and Homeland Security, came out. This spring of 2021, City Lights published his latest book, Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to a World Without Borders. Welcome back to Forthright Radio, Todd Miller. Thank you for joining us again today. It's really a pleasure to be here, Joy. Thank you for having me. Todd, you were our guest back in 2017 when your book, Storming the Wall, Climate Change, Migration, and Homeland Security came out. It won the 2018 Izzy Award for Excellence in Investigative Journalism. Congratulations for that recognition. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Now your latest book, Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to a World Without Borders, was published. In your earlier book, you wrote about the damage that Hurricane Odile did to existing border infrastructure. And a couple of weeks ago, I read reports that Trump's big, beautiful border wall has been uprooted by monsoon rains. I immediately thought of you and your reporting. Before we get anywhere with that, how long have you been covering the border issue? I've been really reporting on the border as a journalist for about 15 years. But before that, I was still doing some reporting, working in different organizations, traveling to different places. Actually, in 1999, I was in Chiapas, which I report on in in Bill Bridges Not Walls. I was born in Bozeman, Montana, by the way, but I grew up mainly in the Buffalo, New York area. So my first time I visited the U.S.-Mexico border was 1995. I talk a little bit about that in the book, too. So if you're going to count from my experience just in contact with the U.S.-Mexico border, it does go back almost 30 years now. But my reporting on it, if you want to count some articles here and there that I've published, maybe even 20 or 25 years. The United States just spent four years under an administration in which the southern border was a very big issue. In fact, even now, during serious COVID times, governors in Texas and Florida try to distract citizens from their edicts limiting science-based public health measures by criticizing the current administration for not doing more to beef up that same border. But as you point out, this issue goes back much farther than either of these two recent administrations. Would you remind our listeners about that? I like to look back to the year 1994, actually. And just to remind your listeners, that year is a big year of Of course, the border existed before then. The border was drawn in the 19th century. The Border Patrol has been around since 1924. The first actual fence, I guess you could call it a wall, but it was a fence that was built in Nogales, Arizona, which is right on the border. Happened in, I believe it was 1918, right when Passport was implemented. But I'd like to look at 1994 because that's the year when a Border Patrol memorandum announced a new strategy, and that strategy was called Prevention Through Deterrence. And that strategy came with several new operations. One operation which your listeners might have heard of is Operation Gatekeeper, but there are other operations called Safeguard, 
hold the line. And those operations basically boosted the border, put a lot of resources, especially in the cities along the U.S.-Mexico border, which before then were traditional crossing places for people. They were traditional crossing places because they were much safer. It's much safer to go from one city to the other rather than circumvent the cities and go out through the desert. So the whole prevention through deterrence doctrine That was precisely the strategy that the border in the cities like Nogales or San Diego or El Paso or Brownsville would be built up with more agents, with more infrastructure like wall and with more surveillance technology. The border system that's in place right now comes from this blueprint, but the whole border system in which it became very difficult, if not completely impossible to cross through cities through towns, and people were forced to go around them. The desert or the rural areas would become a weapon in their own right, in which it would become literally impossible for people to carry enough water, for example, for the at least three to four to five days it would take to walk to a city in the United States. I like to begin in 1994 with those operations to understand today's border. And you look at 1994, there was a border and immigration enforcement budget that was $1.5 billion. It was through the Immigration and Naturalization Service. So that was during the Bill Clinton administration. Then you fast forward to the beginning of the George W. Bush administration, and you see a budget that's about $4.5 billion. At that time, in 2001, that was the most dramatic increase in the history of putting resources on the border. But as they say, we ain't seen nothing yet, right? What what happened after 9-11 really then just completely opened up the money faucets. And it's interesting to think about that, especially with the 20th anniversary of 9-11 coming very soon. What happened with 9-11 was that the old agency of the Immigration and Naturalization Service was disbanded. And in, in its place, the Department of Homeland Security was created with different agencies like ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Customs and Border Protection, CBP, which is the parent agency of the U.S. Border Patrol. And what it really did was that it made counterterrorism a priority mission. And even though there weren't any documented cases of any sort of person that was known as a terrorist by the U.S. government crossing into the United States over its borders, in at least the land borders like that, tons and tons of money went into CBP and ICE. So much that if you look at the, the beginning of the Bush administration, at $4.5 billion for the Border and Immigration Enforcement budget, by the end of it, it was $15 billion. And you had a Secure Fence Act, which called for 700 miles of walls and barriers, something known as SBI Net or the Secure Border Initiative, which brought in all kinds of other billions of dollars for technologies. The biggest hiring surge ever of the U.S. Border Patrol that brought the Border Patrol up to 21,000 agents from 4,000 in 1994, 21,000 agents it reached in 2012. It's basically the same right now. And just this upsurge of resources, of money, of all kinds of technologies, drone systems, motion sensors, high-tech surveillance cameras that we see on the border right now, and that has been bolstered even more. And then, of course, as you mentioned, that was the arsenal that was inherited by the Donald Trump administration, which he was known for for during his four years as president. You document that During the Ronald Reagan era, the budget for equivalent 
agencies was $348 million per year. And in 2020, the CBP, the Customs and Border Patrol, plus ICE together in 2020 was $25 billion. And that's more than a 6,000% increase in just the money. And Trump famously had, even though the monies had escalated to this point, in order to do what he wanted in terms of construction, he actually diverted, I don't remember how much, from the U.S. Defense Department budget. In many ways, this is just out of control. And books such as yours, Build Bridges, Not Walls, are very helpful to put a perspective on what's going on now. By this time in our interview, I suspect that at least one, maybe two listeners are going, well, we've got to protect our borders. And Mr. Trump was very famous for saying over and over again, So how do you respond to people with that sort of reaction to what you bring forth in your book? I definitely welcome those sorts of questions. I honestly think one of the main things that we need to do is to have a conversation about what is going on the border, what is actually being protected, what the word, the terms border security really means, what this has meant to put all this money all these resources, all this time, all these agencies on the border. What does it mean? What I found in covering the border for so long and writing Bill Bridges, Not Wells is my fourth book on the subject and writing about the border for all these years and then going around the country and speaking about this. I mean, I get the question that you just mentioned a lot. And one of the things I always think of is that, or one of the things I always noticed as well, is that many people do not know what is actually happening on the border. Many people do not know about the, how much these budgets have grown over the last 25 years. When Donald Trump was campaigning in, in 2015 and 2016, and he said, I'm going to build a border wall, I remember watching him say this, watching it be reported all over the country and that at first, nobody was saying that there already is a border wall, right? There is a border wall that already exists on the border. But Donald Trump was relying on the fact that nobody really knew what was on the border. He didn't talk about, nobody talked about the Secure Fence Act of 2006 that brought 700 miles of walls and barriers to the border. Nobody talked about Operation Gatekeeper in 1994 that brought border walls to the cities. My point in this is not to chastise anyone on any sort of ignorance. It's more that to say that there was there's a sort of ignorance about what the border is, what its historical trajectory has been, how much money has been put into the border, how we've been told that our safety and security are, in quotes, safety and security is dependent on stopping somebody on the other side of a border wall. And what I have come to the conclusion after all these years of reporting, well, first, is that why don't we take some time and just kind of dissect what this is? One of the things I immediately think of is like, say, Flint, Michigan, and, and children drinking leaded water in Flint, Michigan. And I think, well, isn't that a security issue? 
isn't that a security issue when people not only in Flint, Michigan, but in other places around the country are drinking contaminated water? Why are we putting $25 billion, like you just mentioned, into this border and immigration apparatus when that money might be better spent in creating places where there's clean water or affordable housing? If you go around the West right now, I just did this this trip around the Western United States, including visiting Bozeman, Montana, which is a place very close to my heart. One thing that you notice everywhere is that there's a homeless, especially in Oregon and California, there is a lot of homeless people. So the idea of affordable housing, the idea of people having a roof over their head, those sorts of ideas around what security is, why is those sorts of budgets been cut over years, over decades, while this we're, we're told that our safety and security is dependent on this on this border. And the last thing I'd like to mention is that is it really creating safety and security? The idea of border security, that that term itself, which is often said without any sort of debate, which you're supposed to just agree to it, say, oh, yes, of course, we need that. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. You can't say we don't need to protect our borders, right? But at the same time, what are we protecting? Is there anything secure about it? How it's designed, the prevention through deterrence strategy is designed to make things as insecure as possible for people crossing. So there's one thing. So it's it's almost like border insecurity in that sense. And if you start talking to people who live on the border, who live in the borderlands, who can't travel from their communities without going through a border patrol checkpoint, where people like on the Tonawatam Nation, which is the second largest reservation, Native American reservation in the United States, that's just to the south of where I live in Tucson. You can't leave the Tonawatam Nation without going through a border patrol checkpoint. Just about everyone has an experience normally a bad experience at that checkpoint where they're either interrogated or they're pulled out of their cars or they're told to go to secondary inspection or they have their cell phones confiscated, those sorts of things. So the the idea of security for people who live in the region is very dubious. And then so you have to start to think, well, what is the security for? What is that word? What does security mean? How would there be more security for the people in the country? And I think those sorts of questions if people had them in good faith conversation, would bring a lot of different answers or possibilities or potentialities or potential solutions rather than what we have now, which is this immense border apparatus. In bringing up the Tanadum people, this gets back to what is the border and the border that was established by the Gadsden Purchase of 1853 after the Mexican-American War went right through their land. And it's completely bizarre from their point of view. And in addition to that, the environmental destruction that continues to go on in the building of these walls is just horrifying. Talk about that a little bit. And and then let's get back to the folly of it, because it is so unnatural. It's not sustainable when a hurricane or even the annual monsoon rains come through. It wipes out portions of it. So address some of those issues. Thinking about the Tanatum people, 
the first thing that I think of is a story that I read about in a book by Carl Jacoby, the historian. I think it's called Shadows at Dawn. In this book, he recollects an incident when the surveyors and it was like a band of surveyors and soldiers that showed up in what would become Southern Arizona to draw the borderline. The Tonawatan people, whose Aboriginal land goes all the way to Hermosillo, Mexico, which is a couple hundred miles south of the, where the U.S.-Mexico border is now, to Phoenix. So, in other words, the border itself divided their Aboriginal land right in half without consulting them. So when this, the band of surveyors came, an elder of the Tonawatan went and said, our land goes pointed to the south, pointed to the north point of the east, point of the west. And he's like, what are you doing drawing this border? There's no, we live here. This is, imagine like if you went in the, it was like going into Kansas, some foreigners drawing a borderline saying, this is now this and this country and that's now that country and you can't cross this when everyone shares the same language, the same traditions, the same food and that sort of thing. So there's that, the historic aspect of colonization of how the border was imposed which people should probably keep in mind quite a bit. And there's also the destruction of the wall, the wall construction, like you you mentioned, Joy. And I remember when, even before the Trump wall, there was the Secure Fence Act wall. And Ned Norris, who was the Tana Autumn chairman, went to Congress and he had this incredible, powerful quote about them building. What they were doing was building vehicle barriers right on the U.S.-Mexico boundary on the southern edge of the Tonawatam Nation. And he said, imagine if somebody came into your neighborhood, came into your community with bulldozers and went right into your cemetery of your ancestors and started tearing up the soil and bringing up the graves of your ancestors. That's how it feels to us. And so that's what he was talking about when the when the bulldozers first came to build up that first rendition of the border wall. And since then, of course, Donald Trump carried on that project during his four years. I'm sure some of your listeners saw some of the pictures of the butchered saguaros. The saguaro cactus is 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 sacred. It's a human the, to the Tonawatam. It's a it's a plant spirit or the cactus spirit. It's the humans of the cactus. Or I don't know how you put it, but it, but it's a sacred cactus to the Tana Atom. And over the last four years with the wall construction, and there's been a lot of it. There's been bulldozers and excavators going in and chopping up saguaros and taking water from sacred springs like the Quito Baquito Spring in southern Arizona and building up this gigantic wall. And like you mentioned, also, we've had incredible amounts of rain this year for the monsoon season. What happens, the walls are not equipped to withstand the dry washes often. The dry washes, what I mean, are normally dry. But when there's a lot of rain, those washes fill up and they become like rivers, like flash floods. And they'll come down from wherever the rainstorm is. They fill up and they come like Niagara River, right? Fast, rapids, and they'll just slam into the border wall and take it down. And you see that all across Arizona and, and beyond. This has been happening for years and years and years. When the rains come and we get hurricane remnants as well, we're about to get some hurricane remnants actually tomorrow <laughs> as we speak. The water rushes through the washes and slams into the border wall and takes parts of it, sometimes deep into Mexico. Every time I hear about that happening, 
I think about it. I'm like, wow, if the border wall is left alone, it has to be maintained. If it's left alone, the Mother Earth, the the, the planet would take it down probably within a year or two. And all it would either be taken down by the water or other means buried by the soil and turned into something else. And that each year during the rainy season, that's an, it, those sorts of incidents are an example of this. We're speaking with Todd Miller. His latest book is Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to a World Without Borders. And it reminds me, you, you go into the morality of this. Part two is a higher law is what you're calling it. It makes me think the desecration of these sacred springs because the construction requires a great deal of water. Meanwhile, up in Minnesota with Line 3, they're in a terrible drought up there. The rivers are very low, and Enbridge has been granted billions of gallons of water to construct what the water protectors call an illegal pipeline going through their ancestral lands, crossing many rivers. They say it's not a question of if, but when should the pipeline actually begin to carry tar sands. It's only a question of when they'll fail. I forget how many rivers and watercourses that they are crossing, but it's many, many, many of them. Then finally, the thought of the Dao De Ching, which is called the Watercourse Way. It emulates the power of water and the, the ways of water. And surely this is a manifestation of that with the hubris of humans building this unnatural wall in an artificial place. And as you say, without strenuous upkeep and more and more money being sucked into it, nature would eliminate it. So it's an unnatural act to sum up. Yes, very much so. I just think you make a really good point, and I'll, I'll just leave your comment there. I think it's very powerful. Yes. Back to just the basic concept of the border and the border wall. So you did touch on this a little bit. It's the sense of security is to keep people and maybe drugs out. But we're not thinking about what is allowed to cross freely across the borders. For one thing, manufacturing jobs are allowed to cross the border away from the United States. And I'm not sure if you were quoting or this is a quote of you, but what about the idea of if we're going to have a border wall, a wall that would keep jobs in the U.S. instead of freely being sent elsewhere? The other idea is that capital can freely cross borders, and not just the U.S. border, but most borders around the world. So that leads to the question of what you, as your subtitle, A Journey to a World Without Borders. Tell us about your concept of that world. It's important to mention, to comment on the first part of your, your question, that there is an open borders policy that does exist. And it's interesting that when the idea of open borders is discussed, the predisposition is often to think of the poor or the people crossing the border or people going through the desert or the border patrol arresting people. 
And rather than there's a whole other open border system, which there's other words for it, I guess, like the free market capitalism, free trade, the free trade agreements are all about taking down any sort of barrier to capital. And capital, what I also think of is who is who who's representing that? That means big corporate operations, like you're talking manufacturing jobs that have moved from the United States to places like Mexico, those sorts of elimination of really good jobs with high benefits has happened, you know, since the implementation of NAFTA in 1994. And then they arrived and they pay the minimum wage in Mexico, which often is like $7 a day for a line worker with no benefits. And that's if you do a market basket survey, which is basically a living wage survey, it's not even remotely close to that for a worker in Mexico with the same exact job that was getting a high wage and benefits before. Or Another thing I like to look at if you want to think of water like we were just talking about is the mining operations. When you look at the increase of extractive industries and how they can cross borders, not going through a border wall, but at 35,000, 40,000 feet in airplanes, executives going to different places around the world. And let's say Mexico and Guatemala and Honduras, because there's lots of people coming from those places to the United States right now and setting up mining operations in places that never asked for them and just taking over entire areas, contaminating water supplies with things like cyanide. And you're talking about places that are also suffering scarcity of water due to changing climates and like in different parts of Honduras and with people I've interviewed who've talked about water wells drying up anyhow. And despite their, the sort of destruction and the sort of devastation that's being caused by this sort of movement, there's an open border policy. There's no border patrols trying to stop the mining operations. There's no border patrol, no immigration and customs enforcement ICE that after, say, whole water supply is contaminated, that goes in and rounds up these company executives and and deports them. It's all geared towards the people that are actually probably either displaced by these mining corporations or or a variety, I'm just using that as one example or a, a host of other things. But when we think of open borders, it's always always thinking of that of that one thing. So I just wanted to mention that because I thought your point at the beginning is a good one and a big one. And it's it's time to start thinking about who has an open border policy and who does not. And then when you start thinking of how the world is, to come up with a sort of vision of what is in the future, you have to think of what's going on right now. In reality, my book, The Bill Bridges Not Walls, is a venture, a journey, a trajectory through these decades, two more than two decades of looking at all this stuff very intently, very closely. It's almost more a meditation than anything else. And a meditation that goes through my reporting and all these different aspects, but is a meditation that's designed not to say that I actually know precisely what to do, but that we need to raise these questions, that different questions need to be raised because of many reasons, not least of which the globe is in peril for many different reasons where people need to be coming together 
for solutions rather than being divided. One of them is a climate catastrophe that's happening around the world. Or you could just look at the pandemic, how it's so obvious that we need a global response, especially with different variants and, and that sort of thing. And that the world itself, with the challenges that we have in front of us, is going to take a lot more of global cooperation and bringing down divisions than erecting them and making it more difficult for people to come together and talk about things and come up with solutions. So that's probably that's at the crux of it. The very people in the United States who formerly had the good paying manufacturing jobs with benefits they are the ones who are being focused with the propaganda that we need ever more border construction in order to keep immigrants who will take what few jobs there are left. So it's very, very crafty of the politicians to serve the interests of the elites who are able to send their capital any which way around the globe and keeping political systems destabilized so that people are in an understandable state of chronic panic of how they're going to survive, whether it's in the so-called Rust Belt of the United States or the dry corridors of Central America, where the mining is happening. So it's very, very difficult to know how to proceed from there. It seems like everything is coming from every direction, and very few people are able to maintain the calm necessary to consider these issues rationally. You go beyond rational, and you actually engage the heart. At the very beginning of the book, you talk about a situation you found yourself in, in southern Arizona, with someone named Juan Carlos. Would you share with our listeners what that predicament was? Yeah, sure. I was on the Tonata Nation, as we just discussed, and I was driving away from a mountain range, the Baba Kivari mountain range. I should mention the Baba Kivari mountain range. I was up there with a Tonatum elder. And I had this moment just before I was driving on this road where I met Juan Carlos, where I was up on top of the mountain and I was hiking up to the top of it. And I looked back and you could see through the saguaros and the ocotillo and the different desert plants, this huge landscape of mountain ranges that just went on and on and on. And it was one of those amazing experiences because I actually literally thought was I, I'm looking into Mexico, but I have no idea where Mexico starts. I couldn't see the border from where I was. So I was literally looking at a borderless world for a second. It was momentary. And it, it really kind of dissolved when I was rumbling down this dirt road away from there. And all of a sudden, a man came out from the side of the road, and he's waving his arms in distress. And I stopped the car. And even before he came to the car, I, I figured... Because we were about 20 miles from the border, I figured like many, many, many other people, he'd been probably walking for days through the desert. It was hot out. It was September. I rolled down the window. He came to my window. We talked and I found out that he, he wanted a bottle of water. So he chugged down the bottle of water. And then after he was done with that, I asked him, can I do anything else for you? He asked me, can you give me a ride to the next town? And that is, it was from that moment that the dilemma of the Bill Bridges, Not Walls, the books, I would say the book was born 
in that moment. Because for one, I had to hesitate when he asked. And then as I hesitated, I'd been reporting on the border for years, so I knew what was around us. I thought about the roving border patrols and the green striped vehicles that were nearby. I thought about the advanced surveillance technology. I thought about the drones. I thought about the implanted motion sensors. I thought about all of that. And I thought about all of that because I knew if I gave this man who was in distress a ride that I could be pulled over and arrested and possibly charged with a felony. So that has it. I had this hesitation and the hesitation simultaneously, the fact that I had to hesitate looking at a man in distress like this, it irked me or it actually gave me ire. I was I was angered by the hesitation because my the values that I was taught, even from a being a from a young child and values that you could be taught in from many different religions or if not all religions as as far as hospitality or even ethical values that we know it should be automatic that i would give somebody in distress who if i were to leave there might die because we know that people die crossing the border then every single other value says well i have to give him a ride but yet there's this this rule of law this human rule of law that says if I give him a right, I might get a felony and have to spend years in prison. And so it was that clash of things coming together that um, really started what this book is. It started the meditation of looking at all these years of reporting, starting the complete anger at having to even consider this, and also led me to interrogate the border more, not only with my own self, but going and asking all kinds of people the questions about the border from philosophers to visionaries to border patrol agents to a whole host of different people, including children. And I find asking children about the border to be really important because they are the future and future generations and thinking about things in that sort of sense. And from that, that's where this book came to be. And there's a rationale to it, like you you say, but it also started to curve, it started to go down into looking at it through the heart space and looking at it from that sort of, that sort of point of view as well. And really, at first, I, I was hesitant to do it. And then I fully embraced it, because I I felt like that's where the book was leading me. Even giving him that bottle of water could have, if you had been observed and rounded up, that alone, you could have gotten in trouble for that, right? Technically, you can give somebody a bottle of water or food if you're stationary. At least that's the understanding of the humanitarian aid organizations. There's several that work in this desert and in other deserts as well. So technically, you can't. The thing you can't do is, is quote unquote, further somebody's presence within the country. That brings a smuggling charge. But that said, even if you give somebody water, I've heard of incidents where, say, somebody was giving, trying to give somebody water or put it on a water on a path that people use coming through the desert, and they've been given a littering charge. So there's a kind of criminalization of giving people humanitarian aid, such as water. That is happening. But technically, according to the law, you can do that. That brings up the idea of Scott Warren, who was working with the organization No More Deaths. He actually was prosecuted, and a jury of his peers acquitted him in 2019. 
I followed that trial, and my heart was in my throat because it was by no means certain that he would be acquitted, even though his defense was one of religious necessity. You use a term, radical hospitality. Spend a little time talking about Jesus of Nazareth and radical hospitality, and that it's more or less a universal thing. There are probably places where it isn't, but in terms of human survival, it's long established that when the stranger comes to you, you give the stranger, at the very least, water, but the burden and obligation is deeper than that. So share with our listeners about radical hospitality. Yeah, it shouldn't even be called radical, right? It's so universal. But of course, since we have laws like the laws we were just mentioning, or the Scott Warren case, like you just mentioned, or other cases, you have to use the word radical. And and it seems a bit ridiculous to use the word, right? Because shouldn't if somebody is in distress, like Jesus of Nazareth showed time and time again, or or I've looked at all the major religions. If you come across somebody, you offer them hospitality. Hospitality is a cornerstone of almost every religion, all the major ones that I looked into. And also I looked into the Tanatum Himdog, which is the spirituality of the Tanatum people, where hospitality is cornerstone to the Himdog, which is, is another word for the a way of life. So just as far as fundamental values that go back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. This is what we're taught. <laughs> I mean, the religions teach it. If you don't, if you're not religious, ethical values teach that if you come across somebody in need, you help them out. That sort of cooperation, whether it be universal spiritual values or just how you treat other human beings. So in that sense, the fact that there's laws, the fact that there's borders even, they fall in the face. They start when you put them up against these sort of teachings of our spiritual leaders and our religious leaders and our historic religious leaders and what's been written about them and what they've done and the examples they've shown. It's in a sense, it's just completely anti-religious, anti-spiritual, anti-ethical. When you look at it that way, there's no other way you can really look at it, and you know, in those terms, like, either not being able to giving Juan Carlos a ride. In my case, I would be following all the teachings of all the different spiritualities and religions and what I've been taught from a young child as a value. And then if I did give him a ride, if I didn't give him a ride, I'd be going against that, but I would be following the law, the rule of law of, of the border patrol. So there's huge issues that are in conflict with each other. And it's so interesting that the jury did acquit Scott Warren based on his religious beliefs. That opens up a whole other new legal realm to Roman that really does put these ideas of higher law versus the kind of border law or the human law where you can't give somebody a ride even though they need a ride. You use a bunch of different, very interesting people as examples, and one of them, Brother David Buer, is that how you say his name? Yeah. He's a Franciscan monk, yes. I guess you would say, mm -hmm. and St. Francis, um, we won't go into St. Francis, but he's one of my favorite guys in history. Anyway, Brother David lives what he calls overflowing love. Tell us about that. And then I want to talk about Cornell West and his love beyond reactionary parochial borders. So first, Brother David, overflowing love. 
brother David, who's Franciscan, like you mentioned, a central preceptor tenant to the Franciscan philosophy of Catholicism is this idea of overflowing love, that you're motivated by overflowing love, that what you do comes from overflowing love. And Dave, Brother David made it a point when I was interviewing him for Bill Bridges Now Wells to say that as a Franciscan, I am not motivated by guilt. Sometimes Catholicism is associated with guilt. It, rather, it's not guilt, but overflowing love. So I look through life through that lens. And and when you look at life through the lens of overflowing love, whatever he was describing as a dilemma is no longer a dilemma because it's you, you don't even hesitate to help somebody. You don't hesitate to help a person in need. You are always looking from Brother David's point of view to make the world a better place, to alleviate suffering of people. And so Brother David, he's a person that I've known for about 10 years, and he lives by that. He still wears what's called a cassock, right? That is ripped from wearing it every day for five or six or seven years because he's he's gone to this sort of simplicity in life but dedicating himself, not only in terms of working with different humanitarian aid organizations on the border, such as the Samaritans, that's the name of one of the groups that goes out and looks for people in distress and leaves water and food for people in the desert. But he also has worked extensively in the cities with homeless populations. So it's a constant giving of oneself from an abundant flow of love. That's where he bases his life on. Okay, so Cornell West, you also bring up his idea. He cautions, love is fine, but it has to be beyond reactionary parochial borders. What does he mean? He means a world without borders. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I mean, confined love or love that your love of country, for example, or turns quickly into possible nationalism, which turns into possible otherizing of people that are not within your the boundaries of your nationalism, which could turn into violence, which is could be the opposite of love. And so his warning is against the ideas of nationalism, the ideas of just limiting your love to one thing, but not to another thing. It's And he really is coinciding with Brother David's version of overflowing love, which again, overflowing love knows no borders. It doesn't hold itself like Brother David doesn't go to the desert and say, oh, you, a certain person I will give my love to, but another one I will not. And that's essentially, so Cornell West is looking at the systems, the militaries, the borders that we have, the kind of way that the earth is set up and how we're almost told that we have to think parochially. We have to root for this team versus that. That sort of provincial, you are deserving, but you are not deserving. Cornel West's critique is like, yeah, love, 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 but do not let it get trapped in that. Speaking of teams and us versus them, you do address some of the myths about the border and maintaining strong borders. This is very, very loving of you, Todd Miller, but I don't want my taxes to be used on social services for undocumented immigrants. So what's the story there? Well, the story there is really that's not that is not what's happening. If you look at what's what's happening with taxes, 
you have a lot of undocumented immigrants that are paying taxes, federal, local, social security, taxes that they do not receive any benefits for. And so you have billions of dollars that are being put into these the tax system from undocumented labor that helps those sorts of systems that are part of the finances of those systems. So it's it's precisely the opposite of when people use that sort of argument. The precise opposite is happening. Yeah, you actually document that federal income tax just from undocumented workers was $27.2 billion. And for all immigrants, and we're talking for 2017, all immigrants paid $405.4 billion in taxes. All right, well, what about crime? We were assured by the former president that some bad hombres were coming across the border and they were killing us. And what? what's the truth about that? Now that perhaps is one the most used by Donald Trump, as you just mentioned, and others, reasons to justify the border and the biggest farce. There's been so many studies about crime in immigrant communities, study after study after study after study. I cite I think at least four or five of them in, in Bill Bridges, Not Walls, studies that show time and time again, now historically, that there isn't more crime in undocumented communities. In fact, most of the time there's less crime happening in undocumented communities. So this idea of criminality and how it's associated with such communities is precisely as wrong. It doesn't show out in any of the studies. My observation is that an undocumented immigrant is more likely to be the victim of a crime than the perpetrator of a crime. We are running out of time, Todd Miller. I want to give you a minute for final words for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, what I raise in Bill Bridges Not Walls is a lot of questions. Like I look at all those different areas where which are used to justify borders. And when you start looking at things and unpacking them and looking at what they really are and what's really happening, there's a whole other reality that's out there than the reality that we're being presented. And that that reality needs to be thought about and looked at. And even from a budgetary point of view to like how concepts are being relayed in the media and those are really important to think of. What I'm suggesting is that the world that we live in right now, in the global problems that we're facing, the kind of parochial, as we, if we want to go back to Cornell West's term, use of our time and our energy and our love, gets stuck. And what we really need is a broader world of cooperation and solidarity and global solidarity. I mean, that's one of the big things that I took away from my time with Juan Carlos. Juan Carlos. I didn't have time to ask him why he came, but he probably, if he's like many other Guatemalans and he turned out he's from Guatemala, he had many, many reasons probably for coming. And those reasons, if we want to create a world without borders, well, we have to think of those reasons, what he would, he would say, what people would say are the root causes of why they're coming and really work to building a more humane world. Well, Todd Miller, thank you once again for your work and for joining us again on Forthright Radio. Your latest book, Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to a World Without Borders, is a really fresh take on some very difficult issues, as was your earlier book. And 
we just can't thank you enough. It was really a pleasure to be here, Joy. Thank you for having me again. You have just heard a conversation with Izzy Award-winning journalist Todd Miller. His latest book is Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to a World Without Borders, published by City Lights. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire signing out for now. There are bridges, bridges in the sky, they are shining in the sun. They are stone and steel and wood and wire, they can change to... This podcast was produced by KZYX-FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, local community radio from Mendocino County, California. If you enjoyed the program and you'd like to hear more, in Northern California you can tune in anytime to KZYX at 90.7 FM in Philo, KZYZ at 91.5 FM in Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. If you're listening to this podcast from further away, we also stream live 24 hours a day at kzyx.org, where you can hear our eclectic range of locally produced music, public affairs, and news, along with daily state and national news programs and breaking news. You can also find out how to become a member to keep KZYX on the air. Thank you for listening. They are so